Every week we go to the scriptures because we believe it's there that the person and work of Jesus Christ are most clearly revealed. Um, our sermon this week will be from 1 John 2, 28 through 310. Um, Dodds Pingra will be um, preaching for us. Um, but first, please pray with me. Um, Father, um, God, thank you for calling us little children, that, that we are your children. Um, I pray that we would know that and believe that more um, this morning. God, I pray that, that we would just seek to abide in you, um, to, to walk with you more closely um, in all we, that we do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from 1 John 2, 28 through 310. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hope, thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices law, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appe appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Um, like Britt said, my name is Dodd. So I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad, very, very glad to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, today, we're continuing our sermon series through the epistle of 1 John. Um, so the Apostle John, this is the same author of the Gospel of John, was very likely an old man by the time he wrote this letter, and he writes as a spiritual father to an audience that he repeatedly calls his little children. And in this poetic sermon, John provides clues about the timing of his letter. He says that it's the last hour and that the world is passing away. But John isn't talking about the end of the physical universe or the last hour of human history. He is recognizing the gradual ending of the old covenant order, which Jesus predicted in the Gospels. The last hour that John refers to is the last hour of the old covenant passing away in the light of the new covenant, which was inaugurated in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
So there was, there was a seismic shift that was taking place as the kingdom of God expanded beyond the borders of Israel to the rest of the world. And Christians at that time were facing persecution from outside the church, and they were facing division inside the church. And so John writes this letter to offer a number of different reminders and warnings, encouragements to these churches in crisis. And in the first half of the chapter that we're looking at today, John explores the righteousness and avoidance of sin that will characterize the true children of God. It's, it's easy to see that the human race is divided. In our world today, there are, there are dozens of wars going on in the world. And even when there are no wars, nations, tribes, clans, and people still battle one another across all different kinds of lines. Scripture, too, acknowledges a, a fundamental division in the human race, but the division it describes is not national or racial, social, economic, or even cultural. The main division that the Bible describes is between two families who descend from two very different fathers. The New Testament says there are two families that make up the human race, the children of God and the children of the devil. And this division began all the way back in Genesis 1 when God told Adam and Eve that there would be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. In other words, there would be hostility between the children of God and the children of the devil. So when Jesus came, when he incarnated, the, the Jews were still very divided. And Jesus, the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis, accuses the Jewish leaders who believed that they were children of God of being children of the devil. The good news of King Jesus coming to establish his new kingdom and covenant brings in, it ushers in a new human race where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one and children of God in Christ Jesus. In John's letter, this conflict was happening in the local churches to which he writes. On one side, there were the deceivers and liars that John labeled as antichrists, those who had once been in the church with the apostles and who were now spreading false teaching. And on the other side, there were the children of God. And so John's whole letter is an exhortation to his readers to remain in the one family of God and to not be seduced or deceived into joining another family. So let's read, our, let's read our opening verses again. And now, little children, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John, this is, this is very interesting. John describes believers as those who are born of God. And this is the first time that he has used this phrase in his letter. But, here, but from here to the end of the letter, the notion of birth from God becomes a very prominent theme. He uses the phrase twice in chapter 3, verse 9, and connects this birth to all, all other kinds of things in his letter. And I think, I think those connections are worth mentioning this morning. In chapter 4, verse 7, he connects this, this born of God, this birth, to love. 
He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He connects it to a belief in Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He connects it to victory over the world. In chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And finally, he connects it to being guarded from sin in chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, he who was born of God protects him. Those who are born of God are protected by Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 9, John also says that the seed of God remains in those who have been born of God. God has an eternal son, eternally begotten of the Father through the Spirit, but now, in addition to that eternal son, God has begotten other sons and daughters, other children, through the Spirit. And all the blessings of the Christian life arise, John says, from being born of God. What does John mean by this phrase? Because he, he is not erasing the difference between Jesus and his disciples. He's not erasing the difference between Jesus and us. John knows that Jesus is uniquely the only begotten son. And in the familial context of 1 John 3, where John has written to children and young men and fathers, John emphasizes that those who are born of God have a family inheritance from and a family resemblance of their father. Created in the image of God, those in Christ are born anew. And not, not just to bear the image that Adam defaced, but to bear the image of the greater Adam, Jesus. Created in the image of light, we are born again in Christ to shine with more intense light. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he became the glorified Davidic king the last Adam, the glorified God-man. And so anyone who comes to faith in him are born of God by sharing in his resurrection life by the Spirit. To be born of God is to live as children of light now. Filled with the light that is God's light, the light that is Christ, the, the one who will be the light, who will be our light in the future endless day. And we don't have time to look at this, but I would encourage you to look and to study closely in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus for more on being born of God. I, I want you to sort of consider it a parish assignment. Look at those passages. See what they reveal. But, but getting back to this, every, every member of the church, because those in Christ are born of God, every member of the church is therefore a child of God. Practically, as John makes very clear, this means doing the kind of things that God does. Performing righteousness, practicing love, and adhering to the truth. Our, it's, it's like this. Our Father is teaching us the family business, as it were. We are made more and more like him. We learn to live more and more like him. We are shaped more and more like him. Let's read from verse 7. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Speaking of Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John emphasizes that the difference between these two families is not just a difference of origin and birth. It is a difference in practice. John describes the conduct of the children of the devil as practicing sin, saying that sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness isn't isn't synonymous with law-breaking. It's more fundamental than that. Lawlessness produces law-breaking, but lawlessness is far deeper than law-breaking. Lawlessness is a far more basic posture of rebelliousness. It's a refusal to recognize God's authority and a resistance to God's authority. And so John writes this because he doesn't, he doesn't want any of his hearers, he doesn't want any of us to be under any illusion. Sin at its root is not just, it's not just isolated acts of badness. It's a posture of rebellion towards the living God. And that is not the sort of thing that can be compartmentalized as some people think of their sins. Someone can be a perfectly law-abiding citizen in one sense, observing all the written rules, and still be a lawless rebel. As we have already noted, the children of God are characterized by their behavior too. John insists that righteousness must be manifest in the conduct and life of the church. It must be present. Those who have hope in God purify themselves, he says, and the ones who abide in him do not sin. He warns against the Antichrist who are deceiving his readers into thinking that they could be righteous without practicing righteousness. But John says that's just, that's just not possible. See, John may well be challenging these Jews who were trying to convince the church that Jesus was not the Son of God. They were trying to tell the church that righteousness was a status that came with being Jewish. And that to be Jewish gave them a permanent status of being righteous. Now, righteousness can be a legal term that describes someone who is in the status of being right. But in John's usage here, the point is not about status, it's about living. Not just who we are, but what we do. As John says in verse 7, the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. So being righteous means practicing righteousness. In that sense, righteousness has to do with faithfulness, faithfulness to the terms of our covenant relationship with God, our covenant relationship with one another. In Christ. To put a little bit more flesh on it, a husband is righteous when he lays down his life for his wife 
and conforms to the demands of his marriage covenant. A child is righteous when they obey their parents and conform to the commands of scripture. An employee is righteous when they honor their bosses and coworkers and obey Jesus' words concerning authority. Righteousness does mean avoiding sin. It does mean not breaking the commands of God. But righteousness also means pursuing justice and generosity. Righteousness shows itself in sharing goods and relationship with people who don't have anything or anyone. Practicing righteousness means relieving the oppressed, offering rest to people who aren't at rest, and breaking the yoke of the oppressor. I want you to think about this. Every time you have cooked a meal for someone, you have offered them rest. Every time you have sat with someone in pain, you have offered them rest. Think about how much rest we're actually offering in our parishes. When we provide financially for each other, we provide rest through righteousness, through practiced righteousness. So remember that when you're cooking that meal this afternoon for tonight, remember that you're coming with rest to offer to others in your hands. And that is part of our living life as the righteous children of God comes all the way down to simple acts like that done in the name of Christ for one another and others. Righteousness is showing mercy. Now, let's, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. John is not saying that Christians are sinless. We have to know that. He goes as far as to say that those who are born of God cannot sin, but in chapter one, he said that anyone who claims to be sinless is a liar. And they make God a liar. So is, is John contradicting himself? No. In these verses, he's talking about the general tone of our way of living. Those who are born of God are characterized by righteous conduct, while those who are children of the devil are dominated by sin. So, but we may still ask, how can we ever live up to the demands that John is placing on us? How can we ever be righteous as God is righteous, pure as he is pure? Well, John answers by pointing to the source of power for practicing righteousness and overcoming sin. Not only are we born of God, but we can be righteous in action because of the appearances of Jesus. Let's read verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So twice, John refers to the past appearance of Jesus, the coming of the Son of God in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And John says that Jesus appeared for two reasons, and these are very important. Two reasons that Jesus appeared. He appeared to remove things and to destroy things. First, he came to take away sin. That's verse five. He came to take away sin. But this doesn't refer to Jesus dying as a substitute to remove the guilt of sin. 
John's concern here is with practice and the sin that Jesus takes away is the sin that dominates our lives and makes us do things that we don't want to do. He has destroyed the power of sin. Jesus, the sinless one, comes to destroy sin, to remove it, to rob it of its power and become the sinless Jesus. And because the sinless Jesus has taken away sin, we are able to practice righteousness and not rebellion. But he also, he also came to destroy the works of the devil. That's verse eight. John's language here is the language of Exodus. Jesus came to liberate us from the mastery of the devil who held us in bondage worse than that of Pharaoh's. Jesus delivers children of the devil and makes them children of God just as God came to deliver his son, Israel, from Egypt. So we are able to practice righteousness because of what Jesus accomplished in his first appearance. We cannot escape the devil's power on our own, but Jesus has done that for us. We can't escape the power of sin on our own, but Jesus has done that for us. But John also refers to a future appearance of Jesus in verses two and three. And he indicates that this future appearance is one of the motivations for our purification and righteousness. So because we, the church, because we hope for the appearance of Jesus, we seek now, today, to be pure as he himself is pure without any stain of sin. And knowing that we have a hope in Jesus that we will be like him, we purify ourselves today. We seek righteousness today. We practice righteousness today. When we are born of God, we are born to hope. We look forward to God's appearance and to the, to the transfiguration that we will experience when he appears, a transfiguration that surpasses anything that we can imagine. Our lives as Christians are lived out between Christ's appearances. He appeared once to destroy sin and the works of the devil, and we live today in faith that he has done just that. He is still with us, living in us by his spirit, shaping us and changing us as we hope for his coming. Just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the the other. And so for Paul, this, this transforming vision is already occurring as we witness the glory of Christ, as we witness the glory of Christ and behold him in everything that we do, in our study of the word, at the communion table together, in our parishes, in prayer, in anything that we do, beholding the glory of Christ. We're changed from one degree of glory to the next, more and more into his image. And our limited current vision will one day be greatly exceeded by a fuller revelation. He will come again at the end of all things to set everything right, to raise us from the dead, and this is our hope We purify ourselves as he is pure. John is not saying that we earn our standing 
with God if we practice righteousness. He is simply saying that practicing righteousness is the church's way of life. In other words, we do what we do because we are who we are in Christ. It's who we are and it's what we do because it's who Christ is and it's what he does. The way of righteousness is not is not only the way to please God, not only the way that we live, it is also the way of mutual abiding in God through the Spirit. So we have, to, we have to know, we have to truly believe that God is not separated from us up in heaven just observing our obedience and disobedience and either pleased with it or not. No, he lives here. He lives here among us, in us, each one of us. And as we live lives of righteousness, we remain in God, and he remains in us. As we live lives of righteousness, we become even more a dwelling place for him, shaped more and more by him, and he becomes even more, um, in even more of a dwelling place for us. I, I could end the sermon here. Um, but maybe you, can, maybe you can tell that I've left one important thing out, one important thing for the end. Jesus did come to bring humanity into one family under one father. He did come to remove the power of sin, and he did come to destroy the works of the devil and protect us from him. He's doing that. He does command his church to practice righteousness. And all of this, all of what he has done, it is a manifestation of his great love for you. Pardon me, I know that we're, we read from the ESV, but pardon me as I read it from the NASB. Chapter three, verse one. See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God, and in fact we are. By the miraculous love shown towards us by the Father through the Son and the Spirit, we are the children of God. And this love is astounding, not, not just by its character and its, ex, and its extent, but by the conditions under which it was given. As Paul said in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. John enthusiastically proclaims that all of this, all that God has given us, is a manifestation of God's love. And the phrase, how great here in the NASB, NASB can be translated as, from what country? Can you imagine that? From, from where does this love come? <laughs> it's so great that it feels not even of this world. <laughs> God's love is so surprising, so out of this world, so foreign, so alien. 
I mean, we, we normally love things that are lovable and familiar, but God's love is so wonderfully beautiful and strange because according to Paul's words, while we were sinners, rebels, and unlovely and unlovable, God loved us and gave his son for us. And so what does that mean? As John will say later, He'll say that God is love. Because he is love, he isn't concerned with himself. He doesn't suffer from glory hunger or act out of a desire to protect his self-interest like some, like some miser sitting on, on a pot of gold. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge. Instead, God loves to give himself He is animated by his desire to fill all that he has made with his glory. In other words, to say that God is love means that God loves to share. He loves to give. He loves to glorify. His love is expressed in exuberant hospitality and generosity. And that should give us quite a clue as to what lived righteousness looks like. He fashioned a world to delight us, carefully formed to reveal his pleasure and joy in giving himself to us. This was a a supreme manifestation of his generosity. Adam and Eve were created to be like their father in the garden. They were designed to represent their father to the whole of creation. And all of their responsibilities were to mirror and manifest the generosity and goodness of their creator. Adam's first task was a labor of giving. He gave names to the animals. He identified the shape of their creator's good gifts. And when God turned to to make Eve a being uniquely designed to complete Adam, he didn't take dirt as he did with Adam. Adam himself supplied a rib from his own side and Eve was formed from Adam's gift as a gift to Adam. Adam gives himself, and Eve gives herself right back. God gives himself to both, and they give themselves right back. And when Adam woke and named the woman Eve, it was because, like him, she was created to generously give life to all the living. These are acts of righteousness in the garden, and as the church, as the children of God, we are built to perform righteousness, We were from the very beginning, and we still are. Just like Adam and Eve, we were made to be gardeners in God's vineyard. We were made to be generous and loving with one another. And if we make God's hospitality and generosity the center of our lives together, God will make our church, our parishes, our homes, our friendships, into places of solace and refuge from the weary, divided world. By the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ, these places, this place, our parishes, our lives, our homes, these places could be the various spaces where those who are far off are brought near. May our homes and our friendships and our marriages become places of joy and refreshment to all those who rest within them, for our children, for orphans, 
for widows, for the poor. Places where all can taste and see how good the Lord is and how great a love the Father has given to us. This is how the children of God practice righteousness. Can we keep talking about it? Can we keep talking about it in our parishes? How do we do this? What, let's, let's talk about it as parish families. What are the ways that we can perform righteousness together for the good of the world, for the renewal of the world? the expanding of God's garden, for the glory of his name. And may we beseech the Lord together to guide us in this. We pray with me. Holy and gracious Father, King Jesus, Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, so characterize us by those who practice righteousness that we would be the children of God. Lord, that we would avoid sin, that we would confess sin and turn from it, run from it and that we would perform righteousness, that we wouldn't just make our lives just an avoidance of sin with no righteousness, but that we would look to the righteousness that is ours in Christ, Christ who is our righteousness. And now that we stand before you right in him, we pray that you would outfit each one of us, that you would adorn your church to be those who perform righteousness in the land, who perform acts of generosity, hospitality, love. Lord, that you would, again, that you would open our homes, our wallets, our hearts, our mouths, our arms, our eyes, and that we might just continually invite more to the table. Come, see how great the Father's love is for us. A love that, that says, where did this come from? What country did this originate from? This love that covers sin, this love that makes enemies children, this love that breaks the power of the devil, this love that breaks the power of sin. Where we know that we're going to fail we know that we're going to fall, but we're so grateful that we have an advocate in Christ Jesus that when we do sin, we can confess, be cleansed, and continue. Lord, give us sure feet by your word. Light our path by your word. Enliven our hearts by your spirit. Captivate our hearts and our minds so we might be willing to give our lives for such a kingdom, for such a king. We love you and we need you. Oh Lord, help us, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen.